the ways in which this country has been built to protect the idea that whatever prosperity and security there is to be had, it should be reserved for white men, regardless of skill or talent. And anything that would challenge that white male supremacy is fought and fought bitterly. Ijeoma Aluo is back. The New York Times bestselling author of So You Want to Talk About Race has a new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. We'll talk about that legacy and more with Ijeoma Aluo next. This is Life on the Margins. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas, and eventually the Kenyans didn't have much. Welcome again to Life on the Margins. I'm Enrique Cerna. And I'm Marcus Harrison Green. And welcome back to author Ijoma Oluo, who was on our first episode of Life on the Margins uh, when we launched back in April, and we're so pleased to have you back, Ijoma, to talk about your new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Let's talk about that title right off the top. What do you mean by, by mediocre? You know, it's definitely something I, I go into into the book, but it's really about the fact the ways in which this country has been built to protect the idea that whatever prosperity and security there is to be had, it should be reserved for white men, regardless of skill or talent. And anything that would challenge that white male supremacy is fought and fought bitterly. And the ways in which that prevents any sort of growth or change or you know meaningful progress in this country has you know, cost us immensely over multiple generations. So it's really looking at the protection of white male mediocrity in our culture, in our politics, in our economies, really to the detriment of everyone in the country. In writing the book, you, one of the things you look at the mediocrity, but and you do so by providing some history, <laughs> things that have happened in the past. Uh, tell me about that. For me, it was really important. This book was kind of written out of a frustration that many people who, many writers of color, especially who write about social political issues have had with this idea that each individual white man has his own set of motivations for, you know, the way in which they are today. And it's all new and it all needs to be looked at one-on-one -on -one, instead of actually looking at white male culture as a political and social construct and looking at what caused it. And this fascination, especially since 2016, with trying to figure out why this individual white man is angry, as if it's brand new, as if it just started, instead of the predictable output of what we have put into our systems for multiple, multiple generations, has been really frustrating because it does stop us from you know, achieving any progress on these issues. So for me, what I wanted to show was how we got here. And, and I wanted to show that it was larger than any one politician, larger than any one president, you know, larger than any single political party or movement. It's really the way we've designed our country to work. And that if we don't do something, if we don't start changing our ideals as a country, that it's going to get even worse. So I want to ask you, like, usually I, I would have asked, 
you know, how long have you spent researching, you know, the, the topic of this book, but it, it's obviously from birth to present. I, I want to ask you, why in particular did you think you, right now was the right moment to, to write this book? You know, unfortunately, I think if there's one thing the book shows, it's always going to be the right moment. <laughs> but, you know, like we have <laughs> 200 yeah. years where it would have been a great moment to write this book. And at first I, I was really, at first I was really hung up on the thought that this book needed to come out before the election. And then I realized how hilarious that was, even when you're looking at the scale of the book and the scale of the problem that we have to think that it needed to be in any particular time other than as soon as we could start talking about it, we needed to. So you know, I think even five years from now, if I hadn't written it now, it would still unfortunately be a very relevant book. But the longer we wait, of course, the worse it gets. It becomes more relevant every year. You also write, right, that white manhood is on a suicide mission. It is our job to pull these men in this country they are so ready to take with them back from the precipice. And and obviously it's it's definitely not just a suicide mission, but it seems like a, a kamikaze, you know, piloted mission at, at times. Do you think that we can pull some of these, you know, mediocre white males back from the brink? So I don't know about individual white men. And I want to be really clear. Like, I'm not writing in the sense of like, you need to go find your nearest white man and try to save his life, right? Oh, thank God. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but writing basically that white manhood as a structure, right, as, mm. as a political structure, is on a suicide mission, that identity is, and it's harming everyone. And so because we, in many ways, participate in the structure, because it's the most powerful structure we have in America, we have to do our part to stop it, because it is going to take us down with us. We can't just say that's a you problem. Now, there's certain parts of it that are more our problem and less our problem, but we all play a part and we have to recognize how vital it is. Not that we reach out and get like therapy for every white man we know, but that we challenge the ways in which we are upholding these identities and the structures that support the power behind white, you know, white male mediocrity in this country before it takes us all down with us. Like we have to do it. You know, there's been a, a lot of denial on the behalf of white men of systemic racism. And the fact when you have some officials within the Trump administration, such as uh, Bill Barr and, and a few other people, when asked about systemic racism, they all deny that it exists. And is that the example or maybe one of the better examples of the mediocrity? It's, it's, a part, it's an example of what upholds the mediocrity. So I think it's important to recognize that the powers that be in white America are not afraid of black people or people of color recognizing that the system's rigged. They're very afraid of white men realizing the system's rigged because they play a part in that and because they're being screwed over by it too. And so, you know, it's no surprise that powerful people in our society who benefit from the exploitation of people of all races and genders would say there's no systemic inequity here, right? And racism is one of the pillars that really upholds exploitative capitalism in this country. And it's not because they, they don't want to give us the justification. It's because if you are a white man being screwed over by this system and you're told you just keep trying hard and play your part, it'll pay off. Where then do you make room in your head for the idea that the system actually isn't fair and is choosing to screw over sections of the population? 
right? Then where does it become about? How can you be guaranteed your payouts coming? How do you keep hanging in there and having faith in this corrupt system? And so I think that that's what a lot of the fear is. I think it's being deliberately stoked by political leaders. I think that's why, you know, we're seeing like the Trump administration trying to ban discussions on systemic inequality is because they are really afraid that the people who really do the workhorses of our oppressive system, which are middle and working class white men, will stop playing their part, will start demanding more. But also if you are a white man whose life has turned out pretty mediocre, you don't want to admit that you've been duped, that you've dedicated your whole life to a system that's exploiting you, that's harming you, that you've sold out people, you know, that you've stepped on other people, that you've voted against your economic best interests. And so you cling to this ideal. It's a very painful realization to see that it was never going to pay off for you in the way that you've been promised. And people avoid that because then if it's never going to pay off, what do you have if you don't at least have the idea that you're better than other people and that you're naturally better? It's not, it's not an unfairness. You're just better. When you let go of that and realize, no, the system is just rigged, then you've got nothing. And I think that there's this big fear of that. Yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit more uh, too about the irony of this white male culture that escapes, is able to escape cultural uh, accountability and, and outrage. And yet it's also this very pesky narrative that it's white males who are the most victimized and and, and they are the ones who can't say anything and, and yada, yada, yada. Can, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, <laughs> that paradox is sort of playing out in our society? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to recognize that there has to be a reason why things are the way they are for white men. And, you know, part of what upholds it is this mythology of being wronged that allows people to justify their bigotries, to justify the, you know, the, they're playing a role in oppression is it's not really oppression. It's writing some great wrong that befell you. There's a mythology written, you know, around the aggrieved white man that, that justifies his participation in brutal systems of oppression. And it's, created in all aspects of our society. And I think it's important for people to recognize that. It's not just, you know, a tool of the right. It's something that, yeah, we absolutely, you know, in the book we talk, you know, we show how, you know, when white settlers left during the great migration, they carried this idea that they've been greatly wronged with them. But also, you know, we have these stories in tech, right? We have the nerdy tech bros who are outcasts in society and created this whole new system, right? All of this is this fiction to justify creating everything in their image, to meet their needs, to rectify what they perceive as a wrong done to them. But really, it's about upholding inequities and making sure that they benefit from them. And it is incredibly harmful, this mythology, when we don't investigate it. And in our press currently, we often don't investigate it. So this, and even in our politics, we look at even on the left, politicians saying, yes, you know, we have to look at, you know, the white working class man, of course he's been trodden, you know, but instead of looking at and saying, okay, which of these grievances are real and which ones are wholly fabricated or misguided, you know, where are we, are we, you know, going to critically examine why things are the way they are, but that mythology is so strong and it tells white men, you know, when the system doesn't work, but you've told white men that it's coming, you know, that they have every right, that they deserve greatness, 
then there's only two reasons why you wouldn't get it. If you were born for it, then either you're broken or someone took it. And then so you create these grievances, you know, these stories of who took it from you and who's, who's threatening it, you know, and none of it actually looks at the system. None of it will actually admit you were never going to get it. You know, there's never enough in a hyper-capitalist system. There is never enough to fulfill the promises made to white men in this country. And that's a narrative that doesn't fit, you know, that, that it threatens the whole system. So instead you have to create this, story of victimization. You know, Donald Trump seems to have really capitalized on all of this in the sense of of saying or being that figure for white men in America who says, uh, hey, you know, I'm going to be brash and say what I want to say. And you're the ones that are being taken advantage of. And that's why we need to close up our borders because all the immigrants are coming in to to hurt you and harm you. And yet he's also, even going out here, if he really does go out, he's using this to continue to create that division in America today. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a play, it's an old playbook that's been successful for multiple generations. He's, he certainly didn't invent it. You know, he's, he's likely perfected it. But, you know, that idea that no, look over there. There's the real problem. And I'm going to save you from it. You know, you become a, you can't be a hero without an enemy, without a villain. And for many of these white men who don't want you to look at the system or recognize that they're the villains, they're going to create a villain that they can overcome. And it fits into a lot of the mythology we have around the wild west, around the American cowboy, right? Around all of these things is we created this villain. And now the way in which we talk about immigration, the way in which we talk about terrorism, right? The way in which we talk about integration, we create these villains that white men can overcome and assert their manhood and their power. And it, be- and it becomes justification for, you know, why they have what they have or why they can commit atrocities. And Trump is really justifying, you know, for angry white men who want to have something to defeat, some sort of sense of power where they don't have before to provide someone for them to overcome, to defeat, to to provide a victim that isn't actually the system. He gives that straight away. And that in itself becomes its own reward. And I think it's important to recognize because so many people say, you know, why are so many white men voting against their best interests? Their interests right now are that sense of power. Right. That's, right. you know, right. And, the cruelty is the point, essentially. Exactly. Right? And that's what he's providing. And that alone is enough for them to support him. They aren't actually voting for economic freedom or, you know, anything like right. that. They're voting for what they've been conditioned to settle for, which is this false sense of power. You know, I find it interesting that in the Latino community, there are many Latino men that have been attracted to that message and have actually voted well, I have cousins that are, are, are fall into that category. And there are black men as well and some Asian men as well that have, it's that macho thing that it plays to. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize like as, as communities of color, we need to have strong conversations about 
where we have defined our vision of success is the ability to emulate white manhood. And, right. and there are right. men of color who really do feel like one of the great tragedies of white supremacy is that it stopped them from becoming their own little white men. And that is something we have to investigate and say, where have we taken this, this harmful white male identity whole cloth and said, this is ours, our definition of success will be when we can achieve this, because that there's never going to be liberation at the end of that. I think it's also really vital, though, and I want to be really clear to recognize, because we do have to have these discussions in our community. Right, but I right. think part of how we have it, too, is to celebrate the majority of men of color who, who rejected it. Yes. And said, no, this is not what we did. Because we have to have a discussion as to why. Misogynoir is a real thing, right? Uh, the patriarchy is a real, real thing. And of course, it comes from, you know, in communities of color, it comes from women of color first. Yes. We have to talk about that and have real conversations about that. And then we also have to encourage where we are seeing people reject it, where we are seeing men of color reject it and say that, like, this is important. Because the truth is, the country would be a much better country if, on the whole, white men voted the way men of color vote. Right. Like you would. Well, right. And and on whole, if 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 men of color voted the way women of color, well, at least black women voted voted the way white. You know, if white women voted the way men of color vote, right? right? So it's really important to recognize that while we also look at the warning of this growing voice that says success is going to be where I get to have the power a white man has. We have to wholeheartedly reject that. And part of how we reject it is by what we encourage Mm -hmm. in our culture as well. And I really want to be clear about that because, you know, as the mother of two boys, I get dismayed where we act as if, you know, this absolutely growing number becomes the majority and it didn't become the majority. Mm -hmm. And we have to encourage one and have serious conversations in the other. And I really do hope that men of color who recognized that this administration was harmful to us and voted accordingly, spoke out accordingly, they need to be having those conversations with men of color who aren't getting it, who are holding on to these toxic definitions of masculinity and who are really selling themselves and their families and communities out for this, you know, false idea of power. That's so common needs to be talking to Little Wayne is what you're saying. I don't know if I want to task common with that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also true. <laughs> also true. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask, because in our conversations, you know, it, it, between the, the two of us, I'm the more naive and, and romantic one in, in, in sort of the classical sense uh, of the, the, you know, dreamer, I guess, idealist. And I will say, like, I, for the life of me, I could not understand why 71 million people still, you know, voted for the current president. And, you know, after reading your book, right, I mean, it, it, that even just illuminated more of, of sort of this pathology, right, that, that has its grip and hold on the American society, at least half of it, apparently. And so how important is it that uh, we also have conversations about new narratives in this country, right? That, that we sort of break away from that whole white male Horatio Alger, you know, style of storytelling. And, and this is, you know, what the, the foundation of which, you know, America is, is really built on. It's so important that we learn to use our imaginations. You know, what we have right here, fundamentally, I really do believe that the white supremacist patriarchy, what stops us from moving forward is a failure of imagination. The thought that nothing new could be created. And how many times do you see this, right, in the commentary? It's flawed, but it's the best we have. 
we can do better. Why can't we do better? Why, who puts a ceiling on our liberation and our growth? You know, that's self-imposed. But what it means though, is we have to root out how we have been limited and how we've limited ourselves. And that's part of what I seek to do with my writing is to get people to understand all of the ways in which we've been programmed to think that this is an ideal and it's not. And all the ways in, it, it infects even our movements so that we can say, hey, this limit doesn't really exist. This barrier doesn't actually exist. We can create something new out of whole cloth. There's this weird idea that, you know, our political systems and our economic systems were created by higher powers and not, and I mean, and part of that is by design, right? You hear politicians talk about the constitution as if God passes down. There's actual religious sects that believe that like Jesus handed over the constitution, right? Instead of a bunch of white dudes came up with some stuff and we can change it. And they probably didn't actually expect that hundreds of years later, we would be saying it can never change. We have to grow and imagine more. And I think that it's especially for communities of color, it is so vital that we nurture and grow imagination and creativity and try things and experiment and create space for safe experimentation, not only with expression, but organization with our economy. You know, we have to try things and recognize that if we created this flawed system, we can create a new system and we can change the system and we have, you know, different is worth it. This is failing. It is absolutely failing. You uh, dedicated this book to Black women. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. You know, a couple of things. One, every time I travel to a university, to a corporate workspace, to a government office, the people asking me how they can do more, even when they're broken down, even when their doctors are telling them they're going to have a heart attack, it's always Black women. It's always Black women saying, I'm falling apart. I have no support. I have no personal relationships. My, my blood pressure is rising. How do I do more? And I'm so proud of Black women, but I also am heartbroken at this expectation that we are to be sacrificed for the greater good. We are worth more. And when I write the reader first and foremost that I'm writing for is a black woman. So every page when I'm reading through, I'm thinking, how does this impact the black woman? Even if I know like, okay, if a white woman reads this, how is the way she reads this going to impact the black woman? Right? Like I'm always thinking first and foremost, that's what comes down to me. And I want, you know, so few things are made for black women. So few things you know, systemic changes consider Black women. And I want Black women to know that we are worth more than white supremacy, that we are not just to be sacrificed, that what we face every day is real and it matters, but that we deserve joy. You know, we, we, we deserve more than just struggle. And so, yeah, I dedicate this book and honestly all of my work to Black women first and foremost. How hard was it to write this book in this past year? I mean, this year has been, uh, it's indescribable, really. So difficult in so many ways uh, and so challenging and so frustrating. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I know for, I mean, to add on it, I mean, for you personally, this has been a frustrating year as well. So, yeah, how how did you just maintain and, and, and find sort of the, the resolve to, to do all of this? Uh, I, think you, I would be in therapy about every week. So <laughs> <laughs> and I probably, you know, I probably will eventually. Um, you know, I love therapy. I'm a huge believer in therapy. And I, you know, I went to my doctor earlier this year because I was just, I kept getting sick, you know, and she was like, you know, I think you're having a PTSD response from just everything that you've been going through and then the work that you do every day. And she was like, when are you going to therapy? And I'm like, well, when I, when I have time, I will go to therapy when I have time. Yeah. You know, it's been tough. I've been lucky in my support system. I've been very, very lucky to have two amazing children, to have an amazing partner, to have such, you know, great community network and support and friends, including you, Marcus. And that helps get by, but there's work to be done. You know, I absolutely have healing to do eventually. And I, I need to prioritize it. You know, it's, it's hard right now, of course, since the house fire, because we've been moving. See, that's the thing. You had personal things that happened. You had absolutely. a, a so swatting is- incident. Uh, yeah. Someone uh, said something was going on at your house. And I think it involved your son. And then the SWAT team, Seattle police showed up. You had a house fire. Yeah. Whoa. I mean. Yeah, it's been a lot. This is the sixth Airbnb we've been in 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 uh, under three months. But you know, we're just trying to find space for joy and making plans for that. And you know, for me, for my work, it also means thinking more strategically in the future about how to build more joy into the work that I do. So you know, yeah. that's that's what I'm working on. I'm lucky that, you know, I have people in my life who won't let me forget that I've promised that to myself, but it it is tough. I would say as much time as I spend telling black women to prioritize themselves and their joy, I don't do it as much. You got to practice what you preach. (laughs) I mean, do you, do you see yourself maybe writing sort of a trashy romance novel just to, you know, do something that is is, is just different? (laughs) Someday. Yeah. I have, you know, likely one more book in this vein, but one that is specifically designed to not leave me feeling drained. And then I want to do, yeah, I want to take classes. I don't, I don't think I'll write romance. I'm not, I'm not a romantic. As you know. <laughs> I'll um, take care of that. Okay. <laughs> have, you, have you started work on the new? I will read your romance novel. Ishima, <laughs> have you started work on the next book yet? Or are you um, we're, we're still working on, you know, the discussion with publisher around the idea and everything like that. So it's getting in into that stage. You know, I had, it was an idea I had, months ago and then everything with the fire is like I didn't have a chance to really put it together formally until now so yeah we're in that stage right now talking with the publisher around it but it will be you know for me I feel like a fitting like it kind of turns this into a trilogy around race in a way that I feel like is geared towards action and and won't leave me feeling like drained at the end of it hopefully and then I hope to like take writing classes and study and I love writing I love writing as a craft and I feel so young in my journey in as a writer and and I would love to explore and experiment and write things that suck you know and <laughs> get better you know like I, really- I do that well so you know <laughs> if, you need, if you need lessons let me know before before we close um one thing i would like to ask is i would imagine you would like some white men to read this book it, it may be challenging for them to read this book and it may be very 
angering for some. But what what would you hope that they would would take out of it if they did? You know, I've actually built my whole career with the thought that if a white man never read any of my books, it would be fine. And including this book, like I'm, I'm totally fine with that. It's something I've told my agent, uh, <laughs> really clear with my publishing company. Like, look, yeah. not the market I'm going for. <laughs> bonus, that's great. And that being said, even with this book, I wrote it being aware that white men alone can't uphold this system. There's not enough of them in this country that we all play our part. So even if no white men pick it up, I want everyone else impacted by white male supremacy to pick it up. That being said, I, I, I care about people and I care about white men too. And I, I have heard from white men who've picked it up and said, you know, you've described this, this feeling of dissatisfaction, this anger I've seen in, in my friends and my community and myself that I haven't been able to put words to. I, this feeling that I've been trapped and to recognize that there is a name for it, that there is a way out is hopeful. And I want people to understand that, that these systems are meant to crush almost all of us and we have to break free. And there absolutely is freedom at the end of it for white men but it requires a really painful self-examination and a journey. And it requires belief in yourself. It requires white men to believe that they are strong enough to grow and change, that they will still exist at the end of this oppressive system if they just let it go, you know? And, and that's something that I, I, I want white men to have. That. I want white men to have an inherent sense of identity and self and confidence that isn't tied to my oppression, you know? But if they don't get it, I still want us to do the work. I still want us to change the systems. You know, I, it, will, it will happen one way or the other if we do the work. Well, I, I want to end on, on a note of a, uh, of a Black woman as opposed to a white man. So I want to ask you, uh, a year from now, what do you want to be able to say uh, about your life and, and about your journey and about this world that we can't necessarily say right now? This is a goal, actually, that, you know... Uh, that Gabriel and I have been talking about for a while, what I would love for people to say is that I, I, I created space and safety for black people and other communities of color in Seattle. That's what I would love. That would be, that's our, that's our long-term goal. That's my, that will be my definition of success. If all of this creates the opportunity to do that, that's what I would like to be my leading story you know, would be the space that I was able to create, the opportunities I was able to create for, for Black Seattle. And that's something that every day is a reminder for me, like what I'm trying to, to, to get the resources and freedom to be able to do. And that will be my like ultimate goal of success is, is where we can create that. Ijoma Luo, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Her new book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White male america good luck with the book thank you so much for joining us by the way i want to be your friend too not just marcus so <laughs> i don't want to be left out All right. thank you so much you know you do what you do is just so important just keep doing it thank you so much it's a pleasure to talk with both of you Well, before we close, a shout out to my partner, Marcus Harrison Green, for being honored by the Seattle Human Rights Commission. 
Marcus, the South Seattle Emeralds founder and publisher, received the commission's Individual Human Rights Leader Award as he continues to work for equity and justice and covers the south end of Seattle so very well, giving a voice to the community there for all the people in Seattle to hear. Congratulations, my friend. Well-deserved. Had to be a little bit of a surprise, huh? It was quite a shock. I mean, obviously, you and and Ijeoma turned it down and reverted (laughs) to me, so that's the only reason I got it. But hey, uh, needless to say, um, was definitely uh, appreciative of it. And um, it, it's more so an award for the community and the great community that I serve in the south end of Seattle. So uh, much love and respect to them. And much love and respect from that community for you. Congratulations. Really proud of you. All right. Life on the Margins is a co-production of the South Seattle Emerald. And our music is courtesy of Seattle artist Dre's. Our producers are Jeff Shaw and Hans Anderson. I'm Marcus Harrison Green. And I'm Enrique Cerna. Stay safe, be well, wear your mask. We'll talk more later. See you next time. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas and eventually the Kenyans. Didn't have much, but thankful for all we was giving. It was all hood until we didn't see credit.